the series that we're in, we're looking at when the devil knocks and just talking about the fact that every one of us face sin in our lives. And the question is, how do we deal with the temptations that we face? And we've been talking about how David dealt with them, and he didn't do a very good job, but it's really set a standard for how we can be a, do a better job than that. And just in, I encourage you to think about the temptations that you face and how God gives you a, a means to stand against them so that you can have victory over them. But even when we don't have victory, what we're going to see today is that God still has his grace and kindness directed towards our life. Last week, we began the whole series, and you know, it's one of these series that you kind of look at things about your life that you maybe don't really want to inspect too much, the fact that we are sinners, that we do fail, that we do things that are wrong in front of God, and, and sometimes that's hard for us to face, but you know, it's, it's wonderful when the truth of the reality comes to bear on our lives, and we find out that our God is a forgiving God. After the service last week, I got news that... Um, uh, in a family that after they had listened to the message on Sunday morning, that two of their kids came to want to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The, the possibility is that they had already done it, but they wanted to prove it again to the Lord and wanted to just reaffirm it again. So last Sunday, after a message that I thought would lead nowhere towards a response of seeking a closer relationship to God and, and surrendering their lives before God, two kids, brother and sister in a family, did that last Sunday morning. And so we've got white roses up on the stage for that. And so let's just praise God for the fact that people are responding to the good news. So those of you who are at home, don't let it be a, a hindrance to you to think that God doesn't speak through the TV to you. He's speaking to you today, and he'll continue to speak to you today as well. Today we're looking at the correction for sin. You know, they tell me that there are eight million cats in New York City. And if that wasn't enough, they also say that there are 11 million dogs in the city of New York. That's a lot of cats and dogs. That's a lot of pets, 8 million and 11 million. And the issue in New York is this. What do you do when your pet dies? What do you do? I mean, if you lived here in, in Alexandria, you know what you can do. You, you can do what I did. When our pet died, I went out to the back 40 of the church and I planted our, our, our dead dog somewhere back there. So, I mean, if you want to find bones of a puppy that died, it's back there somewhere. But you know what? You can't do that in New York City, can you? Because the fact of the matter is, in New York, it's steel, concrete. It's pretty hard to dig in that ground and, and bury some pet there. And so what the city did is they made arrangements that for a $50 fee, you could call up and have somebody come out and in a respectful, in a, in a prompt way, they would take your animal and dispose of it properly, all for only $50, okay? Now, an enterprising elderly woman said, you know what, I can give a better deal than that. And so she decided that she would do that. She would undercut the $50 charge by the city. And so she came with this idea that she would run an ad in the paper, that she would dispose of their pets, and she would only charge $50 are $25, half the price. Well, she got a lot of calls. And people started calling her. So what she did was she went to Kmart and she purchased one of those, and then she did it a number of times, those canvas gym bags. 
And so she would get on the subway. She would take her gym bag and, and, and went to the apartment where the people called her. She took the pet, this small dog or a, a cat, and she would put it in the gym bag. She would collect her $25, and she'd go back to the, to the subway and get on the subway. Okay, so here she was, this old lady carrying a bag. It looked like something inside of it that would be worth grabbing. And so she'd set that bag right by her seat in the aisle in the subway and just wait to see what would happen. And sure enough, every time it happened, when the doors opened and there was a young guy, he would grab that bag and run out at the door thinking that he had a great prize, that he had taken something of value from this lady only to discover that what he had taken was a dead cat or a dead dog. You know, here's the thing. The New York Post ran that story and said that this woman actually made pretty good. She, she did pretty well. But the guys who grabbed that bag, it didn't turn out as they thought it would. The story of David at this point is that David thinks he's gotten away with something. But the cat's going to be out of the bag pretty soon, isn't it? And he's going to be dogged by the sin that he committed for a number of months. If you remember last week, David committed a terrible sin. He took a, he took a woman that he should have had no relationship with, brought her to his house that night, and they had a relationship. And out of that relationship, which was been an adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba, who was married to a man named Uriah, who was one of the mighty men in David's army, I mean, she gave birth to a child. Now, David tried to prevent that from happening, at least the information of what took place from happening. And so what he did was, when he found out from Bathsheba that she was going to have a child, he said, let's get Uriah back into town, have him spend the night with you, and everybody will think that this child is, is born of him was fathered by him. And so that's exactly what they do. They have their plot. They put their scheme together. Uriah comes back home. David says, why don't you go spend the night with your wife? We talked about all this last week. And, 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 and instead he says, I can't do that. Why would I do that? I'm a, I'm a man of integrity. I can't do that when there's other men out in the battlefield. I'm not going to be spending time you know, alone with my wife. And so he, won't, he didn't do it that night. David thought, if I can get him drunk, maybe he'll do it. He tried that. That didn't happen. David's panicking now. What what should I do? I got to keep this sin covered. I don't want anybody to find out. He decides that the best thing he could do is to make sure that Joab, the commander out in the army, would know that if he, if he sends Uriah into the fiercest fighting, that he, if he pulls back some of the troops, or most of the troops, and just leaves Uriah to fight with maybe a few other men, that they'll probably lose their life. And so David sends that plan to, to Joab, and Uriah dies in battle. And the fact of the matter is, I, at this point, we probably David thinks that he's gotten away with it. I mean, in fact, it probably looks like nothing's ever going to happen of it because when, when uh, news returns back home, again, all the other troops are out in the field still in battle. When the news returns back home that uh, Uriah has died, Bathsheba has 30 days of mourning for him after the funeral. And David then, after that's over, invites Bathsheba to come and live with him in the palace. And the impression that will have given everybody is just, look at the, how wonderful this king is. I mean, here's this poor young widow who's lost her husband, has no kids at all, no inheritance, no means of living, no, no, no hope for a life ahead. And our king, out of compassion for her, 
takes him, her to be his wife. In fact, there would have been a wedding. I mean, this would have been something that everybody would have known had happened because no king just gets married without a great wedding celebration. And so everybody would have known the kindness of David towards Bathsheba in taking her to be his wife when she had lost her husband in battle. And for all outward appearance, nobody was ever the wiser. Now, Job knew something was up, but that was Job. And he really didn't know all the details of what took place. But remember, even though David thought he got away with it, the cat was out of the bag. Because God, it says at the end of chapter 11, what David had done was displeasing to the Lord. And the question we want to look at today is, one of the questions is this, how is God going to respond to David? We know that the Bible tells us that we reap what we sow, right? And when we sow to sin, there's consequences. Fact of the matter is, David's going to face those consequences. We're going to see the consequences of the sin that he's going to experience next week. But what we're going to see today is that even though there's consequences to his sin, God's not looking just simply to punish David. His disappointment with with David does not lead him to become so angry with David that he brought judgment upon David. But what his disappointment with David did is that it caused God to do all he could to help David find restoration. I mean, when we talk about the disappointment of God for David, the disappointment was not, remember how we said, it wasn't that God was angry, it's that God was anguished because it talks about how somebody who is this kind of disappointment, their heart is broken by what's happening around them. And that was God. And he didn't want to leave it there. And so God does something. And what does the Lord do? Well, we find in chapter 12, verse 1, it starts like this. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan did go on his own. Nathan did initiate the visit. It's not like he somehow found something out that nobody else knew about. He said, now I've got to confront David with this. It's not that at all. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And one of the things that that tells me is this, that God's not going to let this, this cover-up go on. In fact, the matter is, the Bible really does tell us, doesn't it, that our sins will be found out. And God, you know, especially if we're his children, we're his sons and daughters, he's not going to allow sin to be covered up forever. I mean, allow us to experience the, the, the terrible ramifications that can come from that. And he'll do things that'll cause us to have to deal with those sins. And so God is not going to allow David to keep it covered. And so what does he do? He sends Nathan, the prophet, to David. Why Nathan? Why Nathan? Because as I just said, Nathan is a prophet. And so he's the spokesman for God. David and Nathan knew each other. David knew that Nathan was a prophet. David knew that Nathan heard a word from God. And David believed that when God sent a word through Nathan, he needed to be listened to. And so what does God do? He says, you're my spokesman. I'm sending you now because I have a word that you need to bring to David. There's another reason, though, that God chose Nathan to bring this correction, I think. Although it doesn't say it here in Scripture, but it does imply it in many ways. And that is this, that when it came to the relationship between Nathan and David, they had a, 
a wonderful relationship. They had a love relationship with one another as brother to brother. It at least appears that way. And, and, and so what we find out, I mean, it was such a great relationship that what we find out later when, when David does eventually have sons through Bathsheba, and he'll have a number of them, by the time he has, in fact, I think he might have seven sons through her, if I remember right, but we know that he has at least four because the fourth son, when, when Bathsheba gives birth to the fourth son, they decide that they will name that son after this prophet who came to them directed by God and they name their fourth son Nathan. And so God picked Nathan. Not only because he was a prophet, because I think God knew that Nathan would bring the right kind of correction, a good kind of correction to David. And it really, it's, it's really a demonstration of God's heart, isn't it? That God is not looking to condemn David. God is looking to correct David. God is looking to restore David. And the best way that God knew to do that is to bring before him a man who loved him for that correction. Have you ever wondered why God waited so long, though? You know, and here's why I say that, because, you know, by the time the correction comes from Nathan, by the time that God sends Nathan to David, the child has already been born. And so that's at least nine months. It's maybe another few months that the child is, you know, starting to grow. Maybe now something's wrong with the child. We know that eventually a child will die. But maybe there's indication that something's going wrong with this child. And so we probably, it could be maybe 13, 14, 15 months before God sends Nathan to David. So why the wait? What, what, what's going on? Why doesn't God, you know, when the sin happened, why doesn't God immediately go? Because God's watching David, and he's watching what's going on in his heart. And he's watching to see how David deals with the sin that he's committed. If he's going to continue to have a hardness of heart, or if there's something going on in his spirit that tells God that something's changing in David's heart. And God sees something's changing. And even though it doesn't come out, because when you go from chapter 11 to chapter 12, there's no indication of what's going on in David. All it says that God was displeased with David, and then God sends Nathan to David. But in that time frame, in that period of, of months, things were happening in the heart of David. And the one who tells us about that is David himself. So you go to different verses in the Psalms, and God, David reveals what God is doing in his life. We go to chapter, I mean, yeah, chapter 32 of Psalms, and we read these words. It says, when I kept silent, this is David speaking, talking about this time. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. God is working in his life, obviously. Your, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. David's saying, I'm losing my joy of life. I, this, this, the weight of the guilt is weighing me down to the point where I don't even enjoy, I have no energy for living, no energy for ruling this nation, no energy. It's going, it's like the summer Drought in my life. David is experiencing that. God's watching his heart. And I think God knows that now David is at the point 
that when I send my prophet to him to confront him, he's going to respond. And so Nathan shows up. Here's what I want to look at today. I want to look at how God uses us at times to bring a correction to a brother or sister who has gone astray and who has got caught up in a temptation that led to sin. There are times when you are going to play the role of Nathan. There's times when we play the role of David as well. But there's also times when we play the role of Nathan. And what I want us to see this morning is how God chose this man and why he chose this man to bring the response. And here's what we see. In fact, I'm going to show, show two things today. But here's what we see, first of all. See, his correction was done in love. And my point is simply this, that corrections always need to be done in love. When we bring a correction, it needs to be a loving correction. And I'm convinced that when God sent Nathan, God knew that Nathan would do it in a, in a, in a, a loving way. In fact, how, I don't think God, I'm not convinced God told Nathan to tell the story that Nathan told him. But Nathan comes to David, and he has a story. And he, and he comes to, and it was, it's almost like David doesn't know what's going on, but it's like Nathan comes to him and says, Nathan, I found this incident happened in our nation. What would you do about it? And so he just simply tells a story. That's how he begins. And you probably know the story. He comes and he says, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except a little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now the traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the little new lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. No mention of adultery. No mention of murder. No mention of covering up a sin. Just a simple story about the injustice of a rich man against a poor man and how he took his one little ewe lamb and used that as a meal for a traveler who had come for a visit. And you think, why did Nathan create that story? Why did he create that story? Why, why didn't he just come out to David and just say to David, David, you know, I'm a prophet of God. You know that God tells me things that others don't hear so I can share those things with others. David, here's what God's told me. You've committed adultery. You've committed murder. You're covering it up. And you, you need to repent and admit your fault before God and seek forgiveness. Nothing like that takes place. He came with a story a carefully crafted story. Why? 
because Nathan loved David. And he really cared, and he wanted David to respond to his sin with confession. And he wanted David to be restored, and he understood that if I can create this story, it has the potential of David listening to the correction I'm making and responding. Isn't it true, think about it, isn't it true that the way that we make corrections or require corrections from other people, how we come to them determines a lot? You can either come heavy-handed and say, you know what, I've got the goods on you, and if you don't come clean, I'm going to make it public. We can come like that, or we can couch it in love and tact and kindness and gentleness. Nathan chose the latter because he loved David. And for me, you know, here's Nathan, this wonderful example of how we should bring a correction to one another as well. We need to do it in love. You know, an old-time preacher said it like this. He said, I'm not ready to reprove someone until I have a sense of love for the person and have a sense of hatred for their sin. David is deeply concerned of the knowledge of the sin that David has committed. But he wants to confront him in a way that will show how greatly he loves David. And so Nathan brought this kind of loving correction. You know, Paul will eventually say to us, as he said to the Ephesians, uh, when you tell the truth, do it in love. And so he'll say to the Ephesians in chapter 4, speak the truth in love. Which means that we've got to be careful how we share truth and that we've got to do it in a loving manner. Because again, it could be heavy-handed to the point where we beat somebody up with that. In fact, when he writes to Timothy, Timothy is now a pastor at a church. He's actually pastoring the church at Ephesus. He's still a young pastor. He's still learning the things to do. He's, he hasn't matured completely in the role of being a pastor. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, he knows that there are people in the church that need to be rebuked because they're going away. If you remember, at that time, there was false teachers in the church, and Timothy is dealing with these false teachers. And, he, and Paul's writing him and saying, I want to give you some information of how to deal with them, how to bring a correction to them, when you have to rebuke them, what to do. And so here's what he says. Do not rebuke an older man harshly. That's a, good, that's, a, that's a good instruction. Do not re- rebuke an older man harshly. And it's interesting, as you see up on the screen, do not rebuke an older man harshly. Those two words, harshly and rebuke, it's not two words in the Greek. It's just one word. It's epi, pleiko. And, and what it simply means is this epi. It, it means the upon, upon. Pleiso means to strike upon, to strike upon. And so it's like, don't come upon somebody and strike them down. Don't bring that kind of of rebuke. Don't strike down a person in the church because you know that they need a correction. That's not it. Again, he's sharing this with a pastor to help him understand the correct way to do it. And so he goes on then to say, instead, exhort him as if he were what? Your father. As if he were a father. See, now, I don't know about you, but you know what? When you deal with somebody in your own family... With a correction, I mean, it can be a lot different than you deal with a neighbor who is bugging you and does something wrong to you. 
I mean, if they need correction, you'll probably, I mean, you might actually call the police. Go over there and fix my neighbor, could you? Rather than just say, you know what? I got to treat this person gently. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Timothy, these are members of your church. When you exhort them, exhort them as if it was a father relationship you had with them, a mother relationship you had with them, a brother, a sister relationship you had with them. And so that's the parameters that he wants Timothy and us to be operating in. We don't just drop a bomb and leave. We discuss the problem tactfully, respectfully, and then in the discussion of the problem, we do it in such a way that we see them as a brother or sister in, in, in the uh, church, brother, father or mother in the church, and so we do it with that kind of gentleness. So Nathan's bringing a loving correction to David. And look what happens because of that. Verse 5, again, he's, David is responding to the story that Nathan heard. And it says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, I mean, I, I'm sure he's just, his voice is loud and it's strong and he's just saying, as surely as the Lord lives, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did that deserves to die. I mean, the rage on David is just there. I can feel it in what the words He's a son of death. He deserves to die. That's actually what the word means. He must pay for what he's done. Four times that was required because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan says to him, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, in my Bible, it has that exclamation mark as you see up on the screen. And it's giving the impression, I think, if you put an exclamation mark after that, that the original text doesn't have in there, but somebody who translated put it in there as a translator. What it's suggesting is that Nathan is saying to David, David, I got you there. You're the guy. I don't think he's doing that at all. I think he's doing it like this. David, I hate to tell you this. But in that story, the man that you were so angry at, that man really is you. If you're willing to believe it, that's you, David, in what you've done. David, it's you. Do you see it, David? Do you see it? It's you. First principle when it comes to loving correction is that we need to do it in love. Second principle I want to share with you is this. We want to remind those that we correct that God's love will never fail for them. God's love is still there. So Nathan goes on to say in verse 7, right after that, David, you're the man. He says, and here's what the Lord says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, and I gave it to you. And your master's wives into your arms. All the things, he's, he's telling all the things that God did. God did, God did. I, so he's using first voice, I. I gave you the house of Israel. I gave you the house of Judah. If all this had been too little, I would have even given you more. It's an amazing thing to hear God say that. What's Nathan doing in relaying that part of the message to David? 
He's showing the idea that when it comes to repentance, the repentance, the best repentance happens not when we expose somebody to how sinful they are, but when we show somebody how kind God is. That God gave you everything, David. Everything you have came from God. And if that wasn't enough, God would have realized that. And he would have given you more. He wasn't not holding anything back from you. You know, Paul will say in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Surely you know that God is kind because he is trying to lead you to repentance. It's God, Paul's saying, it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And so Nathan is showing the kindness of God to David because Nathan understands a principle that Paul reveals to us that when it comes to the best means for repentance to take place, it's showing God's kindness to the person. Because here's what's happened when we remind somebody who's caught in sin that God is kind, that he's not going to judge. I mean, he's almost saying to David, don't fear the ramifications of admitting to your sin before God. Because he's not going to judge you severely. He's going to treat you kindly when you repent. So he's bringing that kind of understanding to David. Because what I think he knows, like we know, if we come with a correction, the typical thing that people will do is they'll try to hide it. They'll resist it. I mean, there's a fear. There's a fear on David's part, which would be on our part as well, that if we've sinned and we know it becomes public, we know the ramifications of it, don't we? What will happen? People will know. People will think. People come to conclusions. They'll think badly of us. They'll maybe speak negative against us. They'll do everything because they know how terrible our act was. And David could easily have decided, I'm not going to reveal this to Nathan anyways. But because Nathan came in this gentle, kind way and said to him, God gave you everything. He would have given you even more. It allowed David to be willing to say, well, look what he says, say. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. No crying, no tears, no, just a simple statement that revealed his repentant heart. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan responds by saying, the Lord has taken away your sin. So we know it's genuine repentance because the sin has been removed. See, and you are not going to die. I mean, there's the wonderful conclusion of a loving correction. A person admits they're wrong, they confess their sin, they find forgiveness, and they find the restoration of their walk with the Lord. God said to him, and the Lord, or said about him, and the Lord was displeased with David. And now 
the possibility is open for the Lord to once again have a pleasure with David. So remember, nobody looks good when they stumble into sin, right? But everybody can recover if they have a friend like Nathan. And so whether you are a person who needs a friend like David or Nathan, or you are the friend like Nathan, God wants us all to understand that it's the loving correction that brings the best restoration so that we have a heart that turns back to the heart of God. It's a great story, and we'll finish it up next week because we're not done seeing the love that God had for David. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this time that we've had just to look at your scriptures, see what they had to say to us. And Father, we just pray that as we've heard these words that we'll apply them to our lives as well. So whether we are a person who needs a Nathan to come into our lives or we are a person who is to be a Nathan to go and help somebody else through their fall, Father, give us wisdom in what to do and how to respond. And maybe you will be calling us to be like a Nathan and you'll send us to that person. Give us the courage to do it like Nathan did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we close.